Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the theater. Madness is a natural companion of creativity, even brilliance. Aristotle is quoted for having once said, No great mind ever existed without a touch of madness. And in Edgar Allan Poe's iconic story, The Telltale Heart, his protagonist said, True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous, I had been and am. But who will say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Without a doubt, a mind touched with insanity makes for an interesting one, a unique one, if nothing else. And if minds are the origin of ideas, then we are to surrender the conclusion that some ideas of madmen are bound to be simply fascinating. Madness conjures images of straitjackets, solitary confinement, and the clown prince of Gotham. Our associations with the concept are easily polarized. Vulnerable to pop culture references, cliches, and reductionistic conclusions. All too often are individuals thought to be sane or insane, clear-headed or deluded, dangerous or harmless, a killer or an innocent bystander. But we simply must rethink this infantile view as often as possible, of clear tracks and predictable destinations. Humans are complex, beautifully so. Streaks of madness, moments of weakness, a lapse in moral judgment, and the consequences of actions done as a result are part and parcel of being human, and just why it is so intoxicating to be human at all. Throughout history, we have known individuals of great intelligence and merit to be plagued, or even seen as blessed, by bouts of insanity. A discrepancy in their otherwise sober senses, which both inspire odd behaviors, but also lends itself to their brilliance. And then there are those who can blend in with normal people, all the while entertaining deluded ideas or suffering from a great paranoia devouring from within. It would seem foolish to determine that great achievements are attained in spite of one's madness, rather than partially because of it. What of those who obsess over a particular craft, say, a profession or skill, devoting abnormal hours to it, their whole lives even, sacrificing social gatherings, their health and normal behavior to indulge nothing more than a fixation? We label such people as professionals, experts, or even prodigies in the world of professionalism and sport. But is this not its own kind of madness, a stunning example of disregard for normality. Just as I said before, it is so seldom checkered, so black and white, as sane or insane, or a romantic, artistic madness besides a debilitating clinical one. And for today's show, we take a very real glimpse into the heart of this complexity. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and you are listening to the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history. And this is Mania. Details were always of the utmost importance to Richard Dad. Within the tiniest fragments was the strength from which whole ideas could compound, build, and manifest into whole works of art. Born to a chemist, his father, and a shipwright, his mother, in 1817, 
it was only sensible to assume that he would follow in either of their footsteps towards a more practical craft. But to both of their surprise, Richard had a youthful propensity towards art. His aptitude for drawing was evident from an early age, as the young adolescent would painstakingly render complex drawings over the course of many hours. It being the early 1830s in England, Richard choosing art wasn't necessarily a decision that would make his parents nervous about future job prospects, as it would for many modern fathers and mothers today. In fact, in the early Victorian era especially, the sciences desperately needed artists to accurately copy and illustrate anatomically correct depictions of the human body, of bones, organs, dissections, complex maps of veins and arteries, and really, anything which needed illustrating. So rare was it for a scientist to be equally talented in drawing, that to have that skill was seen as a high advantage against others in the field. In 1837, at the age of 20, Richard was admitted to the Royal Academy of Arts, and just three years later would be awarded the Medal for Life Drawing in 1840. Richard was optimistic about his prospects. He and his peers had every reason to see nothing but a bright future for him. His passions guided his hand over canvas, graphite, and oil paints. His heart beat with an inquisitive fervor, propelled by a keen fascination with mysticism. More interesting still, his true intellectual interest lay in the worlds beneath our own of spirits, fairies, sprites, demons, gods, and goddesses. These were his favorite subjects to depict, the ethereal ones, which couldn't be detected from the naked eye, rather pulled out of an inner intuitive, some could even say a spiritual eye. Somewhere within these fleshy confines, Richard reckoned, was a kind of divine presence, something both beyond and about us. Just as he became more consumed by his artistic process, so too did this obsession with spiritual realms truly bud and flower in his early adulthood. In the late summer of 1842, the former mayor of Newport chose Richard to accompany him and his daughters on an expedition through Europe to Greece, Turkey, southern Syria, and Egypt. Now this journey would prove to be the most influential experience of young Richard's life. He translated his travels into paintings, splashes of color, symbolism, and subtle details. His mind always teemed with ideas, but never quite like this, being so overwhelmed with fresh inspiration and experiences he could have never imagined. Traveling the world at such a pivotal age would be influential for anyone, but to a mind like Richard's, it dared to inspire cataclysmic changes. By November of that year, the last leg of their journey proved to be a grueling one. They spent two weeks in southern Syria, passing from Jerusalem to Jordan, cutting through the Engadi wilderness. But it was the Nile River which became the environment for Richard's transformation. While traveling by boat, Richard underwent a dramatic personality shift. He became violent, his moods highly temperamental. And most notably, those who traveled with him noticed a shift in his eyes. 
Richard always looked about him with the precision of a needle when he worked, and out in the world they seemed to suggest an open reflection one has when observing the world in great soulfulness. But after the Nile, it was as though that passion was turned inward, a storm of expression and curiosity imploding on itself, plummeting into the recesses of his being. Richard's gaze took on this unsettling blankness, the look of someone so twisted in their own thoughts that they seemed dissevered from the real world, and it never quite recovered that light that he once had. After thrashing and raving wildly on the boat, at last Richard was restrained to a bed, and there, soaked in sweat and half-murmuring to himself, he admitted to his travel companions that he was under the influence of the Egyptian god Osiris. Just like the details of Richard's paintings were of the utmost consequence to him, this one can't be overlooked by us. Richard could have said any number of the Egyptian deities, but he picked Osiris, the lord of the underworld and judge of the dead. Osiris is often depicted with black or green skin, symbolizing the fertile mud of the very river which was ushering Richard into this new, darker phase of his life, a phase which would prove to be his own underworld. Though Osiris is often seen as a just, generous god, there are other important depictions of him as being a terrifying figure who sends demon messengers to drag the living into the realm of the dead. Richard's mind never quite recovered from this experience. Originally, it was thought he had sunstroke, but upon his return to England in the spring of 1843, it was evident that something more permanent had beset him. He was diagnosed as being of unsound mind and was taken by his family to recover in a rural village about 10 miles southwest of London. This is where our story diverges. The expectations of normality, shattered by the unpredictability of what was so gently referred to as an unsound mind. Some might say the task of an artist is to allow ideas to transcend from the realm of thought into the corporeal world, be it onto a piece of sheet music, canvas, or in the pages of a book. But many artists, those who become obsessed with their work, might find the experience somehow reverses itself, feeds into itself, such that their work transcends its bindings and takes hold of their reality, governing how they interpret it before they even put it into their craft. Where the world first provided ideas for what to put onto the canvas, the canvas starts to produce ideas for what to see in the world. That same year, an idea took hold. He was convinced that the devil had inhabited his father's body. And because of this, he ended his father's life. He'd done it with a knife, not slowly, rather in a sudden, unexpected movement on a quiet evening when the rest of the people in the home had already gone to bed. A murder of necessity, of logic, not passion, driven by a string of reasoning which to us reads like insanity, like madness. But to Richard, it was the most sensible, perhaps even humane thing to do. Though undoubtedly possessed by erratic thoughts, 
Richard had lost none of the cunning which made him a lauded artist. Now he knew full well the ramifications of what he'd done, and so he fled to France. On that route, he came upon a fellow passenger. To him, this passenger's eyes harbored a kind of darkness, a, a similar sensation he got from his own father. But all Richard had besides his painting supplies was toiletries. A razor, thusly, became his next would-be murder weapon. But before he could kill the passenger in the train car, he was overpowered by police and arrested. And yet, this story doesn't end in tragedy. In fact, it may be one of the most lighthearted stories ever told on this podcast. There's also very little mystery to this tale. Two of Richard's siblings were paranoid schizophrenics, diagnosed, and his third sibling, though highly functioning, had a private attendant for reasons that were kept unknown to friends and acquaintances. So you see, the visions of Osiris and the eerie touch of the supernatural are readily cleared of their significance. Talk of the devil can be waved away. Were it not for the Nile River, it may have been a particularly lonely summer in the English countryside. Whatever may have sparked this madness which was going to inevitably beset him, it comes across all the same to us. And what that is, is a nearly linear descent from sanity to a compromised mind. But from Richard's perspective, the truth could never be so simple. Richard wasn't dealt with as most madmen were. Remarkably enough, he was at the hands of doctors who understood that the medicine world's traditions of dealing with the mentally ill were simply barbaric. So Richard was placed in the criminal department of Bethlehem Psychiatric Hospital, colloquially known as Bedlam. And no, that isn't a coincidence. That's where we get our word for uproar, confusion, chaos, from that hallmark hospital where mental illness was recognized as needing very careful, meticulous attention. One could almost say a painter's eye for detail. Though, of course, it wasn't always like that. Bethlehem's history is just as horrific as the history of dealing with mental illness itself, but that's an episode for another time. But that is the beauty behind Richard's tragedy. Society didn't punish Richard for murder. Instead, it sought to treat the disease which undoubtedly compelled him to do it. In the hospital, Richard was encouraged to continue painting, and continue painting he did throughout his years in treatment. He created some of his best-known works, works he can spend hours now looking at, every time finding a new brushstroke which suggests an odd or fresh idea. The world through his mind truly is remarkable to look at. The mind of a man who felt compelled to murder his own father, and then a stranger on a train. How bizarre is that? It is undeniable that there is a deep, rich beauty in his work, and yet it is coupled with this undeniable fact of a madness lurking beneath it. We don't have to take it on faith. His paintings truly are original, bizarre in the most wonderful of ways, and consistent in representing a world beneath our own while still illustrating the very same physical reality. It is evident that his mind was remarkable, not in spite of his mental illness, but because of it, or at the very least, partially so. And what a testament Richard's story is to the hope within human nature. 
that within us there can be such darkness, a darkness which spreads, reaches out into the world in the form of stealing another life. Yet within civilized society is the grace to understand that one action or one thought does not define a whole human being, but is merely a single detail and the overarching work of art that is them. Though there may be redemption in Richard's tale, in his stabilizing condition, his ability to continue painting to the end of his days, whenever he drew portraits, there was always a consistent detail that never was missing. The people in his paintings, their eyes, there was always something off with them. A hollow, distant gaze, almost as though their thoughts were eating them from the inside out. Thank you very much for joining me for another episode of Mania in the Grim Theater, which currently resides in all of our minds. Perhaps one day it will be in a corporeal space, and if you would like to help make that dream a reality, go on over to patreon.com forward slash harlequingrim, and there you can contribute to this dark mission. Otherwise, if you are listening to the show, supporting it by sharing it with your friends or families or talking about it with your fellow cultists at your weekly ritual gatherings, my friends, thank you very much. I am deeply honored. Whether you are doing one or all of those things, if you'd like to stay in touch with me, you can find me over at Twitter or Instagram under the handle Harlequin Grimm. Now, as always, I'm deeply honored to be your host, so let's continue with the show because I frankly cannot wait. Now, there really isn't much to cover with this episode. It's all very factual, see? Richard did have something of a psychotic break. I do not know the actual clinical term for it. It does appear that he had the same paranoid schizophrenia that his siblings had, and it proved to be, uh, well, too intense for him to exist in the common ways that other people exist in modern society. It was deemed not safe. However, under the right constraints, his mind was able to flourish and he was able to do what he appeared to have been put on this earth to do, which was create some beautiful works of art. I encourage you to go look at them and see the unsettlingly beautiful mind of apparently a murderous madman who didn't go on any dramatic murder sprees, yet made his statement loud and clear by killing his father. Please, Google Richard Dad and look at his paintings, and yes, look at the eyes, in particular, of his subjects. They seem to be rather cold, distant. This was a trademark look that he bestowed upon his subjects. A very famous portrait is of his personal doctor, actually, possessing this very cold stare. I found it rather compelling. I'm not sure if Richard did this intentionally, or this was a reflection of his own mind, of course it's much more romantic, to think that it was a subconscious, uncontrolled, uh, let's say, depiction of reality in his head, but I would guess that he was smart enough to know what he was doing as a very expert painter and did this for a specific reason. Perhaps he is talking about the voice inside his head, or his own mental illness, or the existential dread lurking beneath everyone. 
Perhaps he is pointing at something greater that requires a bit more thought to truly unravel. Whatever it may be, it is worth a moment's glance. Now, folks, I must come clean about any details which I dramatized or just plain spun up out of nothing. And one of those details is the fact that Richard killed his father with a knife. I have no idea how he killed his father, and from all of the sources I scoured, they did not specify. So if you know, for some odd reason, please feel free to reach out and tell me. I'd be fascinated and delighted to know how he did it specifically. There is very little left to say, and the night grows long. Thank you very much for joining me. This has been Harlequin Grimm, and as ever, the theater is open to you.